Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hey everyone, welcome to the 249th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Matthias Kepler and Koga Okijiru. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlo. Today we've got Jen McGowan. She's a director. She's done movies like Rust Creek and Kelly and Cow and television shows like The Purge and The Twilight Zone. We get into it with her. We have a lot of wonderful conversations. She's a true advocate, a super smart person. And, like, quite passionate about directing. So it's a really wonderful conversation. Yeah. She's uh, somebody that I actually found through social media, through Twitter. And she talks a lot about directing. And I was like, wow, this person is uh, is really fun to hear about. It's it's weird. I think most directors probably like talking about directing. But some are better at generalizing the experience and talking to people at various stages in their career some people are good enough they even have a podcast about it hey, hey. but uh but yeah it was really fun i would love to, to listen to that show then maybe we could stop this one. Oh, good one okay called making movies <laughs> is hard with alex ferrari anyway so jen, jen i think probably the thing that stuck with me most from this interview is when she talked about how directing isn't about power as much as it is about influence and the types yeah, of such things, a great takeaway. Yeah, that as a director, you can trade for influence. Like you're like, okay, you know, I have to shoot this in two days instead of three days. But that means like, can we just cast the person that I know is going right, to right. destroy this role so that we are saving time on set? And and that the farther you move in your career, the more influence you amass, the more crew heads you get, the, the better relationships you have with cast. And you start being able to put together different projects in a more confident way and and like she said like you just have more influence as a director and uh, yeah i thought it was really interesting to talk to her about that yeah so uh but before we talk to jen yeah i thought we could do a little catch-up yeah let's do it i have a really random thing to talk about remember quite a few months ago i was talking on the podcast about how i visited the set of a major motion picture but i I don't know. For some reason, we thought it was probably like not smart to like talk about that major motion picture, but it came out. Yeah, I think that is. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm 100 percent right. Oh, you're 100 percent right that I, it, we shouldn't talk about major motion picture sets that we visit. Why can yeah? And, and tell, why and does tell Kevin him. Smith talk about going to the Star Wars set? Well, that's different. They brought him to the Star Wars set so that he would promote the movie. Like when we're invited to a set for the show, that's different than if, like, for instance, a good friend of yours had access to a fancy movie and was like, hey, come swing by. Okay, but what about like when you shadowed on Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Like, is it weird for you to talk about that? Yeah, it's a, a little iffy. I'm, I'm careful about what I say. No, right. But you're not talking about the details of that. But the fact that you were on set there is fine, right? You've talked about that on the show. Yes, that is true. So go for it, Oren. 
<laughs> um, well, anyway, the movie's out now, but the movie was Wonder Woman 1984. Surprisingly enough, not made in that year. Yeah, crazy. You would have remembered it very clearly, though. So I was in London, for starters, which is weird because none of that movie takes place in, in London. And Wait, did you go to Pinewood? Yeah, I think so, where they shot Harry Potter and all that stuff. And Star Wars? Star Wars, sure. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know much about like, movies. Just like, just like the <laughs> most famous yeah. studio. So so did you get clarity on why um, why they were shooting in... In London? In Pine Yeah, Park? so I, yeah, I... There are big sound stages there. Is it just that they're... I asked my friend. Yes, yeah, so I have two friends. They're a couple. They're both in the movie. And I asked him why they shot in London. And he was like, the tax credits and i was like what can't you just shoot in michigan for the tax credits i mean most of the movie takes place in washington dc and uh he said no that we shot like they shot london for washington dc which is just weird because they did shoot a lot of stuff and not a lot they shot for a few weeks in washington dc and then they shot most of the movie in london um so when we were there i didn't realize this at the time we were on the set of a museum right and it was uh pedro pascal hopefully we get on the podcast at some point he also plays the mandalorian but i kind of got got to know him a lot on that visit but it was him and Kristen wig he, he was like hyping you up he was like Oren, anything you dream you can have it just wish for it <laughs> yeah it did not work but so it was like Kristen wig and pedro pascal and gal gadot they were joe they were like messing around with, around yeah yeah with um with artifacts at like at the museum <laughs> at the smithsonian but like, I, like, I didn't like Kristen wigg's office basically yeah like where they're like looking at the various artifacts and he's telling her what he knows about the things and then wonder woman is like talking so you, about you saw glasses Kristen wig you didn't see yes emo Kristen wig or cheetah Kristen wig no it's like chitara is that the characters? I they now in superhero movies they don't ever say oh, the full name the, the code name of the character because they're all very silly and no one will be like call me Chitara now or whatever. But I think it, I don't know. I'm not a big Wonder Woman person. Yeah, I honestly didn't even I didn't, didn't know that much about her. But um, I didn't even know she had an invisible jet. Oh yeah, which I guess everyone knew that. Well, that's from the the '70s TV show. Oh, anyway, I want to know, Oren, besides the fun and glitz and glamour of being on a big Hollywood A-list blue chip set. Were there takeaways? Were there things where you were like, oh yeah, this is just like uh, what I do? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's like two things. One, and I think I might've mentioned this back then when I was less specific about it, but the director, Patty Jenkins was directing the scene and they did a take and then they were like, oh, we, I think we saw like a light in the reflection of Kristen's glasses. Did we see a light? Like, um, can we, should we do that again? Yeah, let's do it again. Like, those little things that you think on your tiny set, the problems you have, you're like, oh, on big sets, I bet they never have this. They have gigantic lights and the CG, they have VFX fix everything. They've like, got the light spotter, so they know for sure, and they're in real time removing any reflections uh, with the CG yeah, modulators. And so, yeah, so I thought it was interesting that they had like the exact same issues. The only difference, I mean, and it's a significant difference, is they just have all the time in the world. Like, they they just did not seem to be in a rush. They like shot like 10 different versions of that scene. I find that the more experienced directors are, the more open they are to like being like, what? I don't know. What do you think? Like, let's try it like this. Or you have a good idea. Let going with the flow was was a cool takeaway. It was cool. Uh, yeah. It makes me think of like when I was at Comedy Central, sometimes people would be like, well, what do you think? And, it, uh, you know, I was the last person they would ask. But uh, 
you know, I would always, I'd give my opinion, but in the back of my head, I'm always like, well, don't you guys, don't you have a spreadsheet or, <laughs> right. or, Aren't you the professional? or, or like, so, like a genius or like rules of wisdom or just like, is it really just going to be the six of us in this room saying like what we think and then the boss calls it? Is that how this works? And the answer is, yeah, that's how, that's how it works. Most of the time, look, they're weighing in with other people. They're, they're going from, you know, rooms of six people to rooms of six people and all the different departments and stuff. But, but yeah, you kind of just like, there's no, uh, you know, there's no secret cookbook in the back room that people are, are looking at. It's just a lot of, you know, you consider the data, you consider everything you know about filmmaking and then you make your best Yes, basically. Yeah. Well, one of the most profound things that I had been have been told since I moved to LA back in 2005 was from Sandeep Parikh, who had been on our uh, podcast before. He was like one of the guys in the guild and he did a bunch of stuff for various comedy things. But I remember he was one of the first people I met in LA and I was talking to him about like writers and like, I, you know, how do you get to that place where you're like this big, successful writer, producer, director? And he was like, dude, what there, we are those people. Like you want to talk about like the next hotshot writer, like that's us just go write something. Like there isn't this like mythical genius that knows everything. It's like, if we do it, then it can be us. And you know, I I don't know that I've, I took that advice (laughs) Uh, so well. Tomorrow I'll get started. But I think, yeah, one of the, one of the things that you learn, I think as a filmmaker is like, Anyone, anyone can do this. You don't need to be some genius that's always right. It's, you just need to keep working at it and honing your craft and uh, being related to a very famous person. It helps a lot, too. Well, speaking of uh, geniuses who are always right, I can't wait to get into our conversation with Jen. Uh, but before we do that, I want to remind everybody about our Patreon page patreon.com slash just shoot it pod it's the place that you can drop a couple bucks a month on a rolling scale whatever you want to help the show grow keep us going we've made a few investments recently in terms of a little bit more gear that's kind of busted and needed replacing you know the beginning of the year is always when we get hit with all of those different kind of uh, hosting fees so it's really nice to have the patreon there to cover Things like editing those fees and all of the things that help yeah, the keep our show hot grow. sauces Matt needs to operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're expensive. Heatness.com <laughs> for your just shoot a pod hot sauces. I wish. Yeah. So uh, check it out. If you give us $10 a month, we will send you a just shoot it podcast hat, which actually just says just shoot it. And then it kind of barely reminds you that it might be part of a podcast. But I mean, it's just the coolest thing to wear on set um do you listen to pod save america no i do not oh they have a lot of ads and the way they read their ads is so specific that i know how to fast forward past them because i'll hear oh he the, his voice sounds like like a, there's a certain tenor to it to the main guy's voice when he reads an ad that's different than when he's just talking and i wonder if that happens with us too like if someone is listening to us right now if they think we're in the middle of a patreon plug or if they think we're talking about the podcast so. well Oren, sarah puts the music in so that people know that they can fast forward ah sarah that's one of the things you're paying you're a gift you were giving everyone is the ability to recognize where you want to fast forward right so. if you're already a patron then we will email you every week the exact length of our patreon plug so you'll know exactly how much to fast forward 
to skip one this of part. the one of the many <laughs> hidden perks of being a patron. Okay, cool. Should we talk to Jen? Let's talk to Jen. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check them out. Let us know how it goes. Jen, you are a director and you have a movie on Netflix right now, Rust Creek, that came out kind of recently, even though you shot it kind of a while ago, right? 2017? Well, so here's a funny thing. We shot it between Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas in 2017 posted through 2018 it actually came out theatrically in january 2019 but it, you know it, it came out on a day and date release so it came out theatrically while it came out on i think first was itunes and you know they they have these windows where it goes from the various platforms you know basically from the most pay per minute to the least and and so netflix is kind of in that order towards the end of the line so um, that's, it's really funny, like, you know, and getting a lot of congratulations, your movie is finally out. And I'm like, well, it did play in theaters last year, <laughs> but nobody ever heard of it. So, you know, cool, man. I'm glad it's new. Yeah. Who distributed it? IFC Midnight. Oh, cool. And was there any tie to IFC before it got distributed or did they, they picked it up at a film festival or something? They also distributed my first feature, IFC regular distributed Kelly and Cal. So I had a relationship with them, but yeah, we just took it to them directly. Oh, cool. It's not, you know, Rust Creek is not really a festival film. I kind of wonder if we should have wasted any time even going to festivals, actually. Can you go into that a little bit more? Because I think that's a thing that, you know, people say every once in a while, but I think that we're all programmed to think that festivals are the only path for a movie because that's the thing that yeah. people Especially talk about. In indie film. And I have a hunch it's you've really, got a lot to say about it. I, I just, it's not, it's not. I mean, look, you need to inform yourself about the market and every festival is a different market. They have a different agenda. You know, there's, there's the, well, let me think one, two, three, four, maybe five in the U in the U S and North America that have that you can do sales at. Um, and, and then everything, from? well, uh, Toronto, I think in order, Toronto, Sundance, South by Tribeca, I guess Telluride, but for some reason, I kind of feel like Telluride. It's like all the movies already have sailed, right? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I I don't know that much about Telluride, but so, you know, those four definitely. And I think because Tribeca is at the end, um, they tend to be better for docs. At least that's what I I understand. Could be wrong. Could have changed. That's the other thing. It changes all the time. So, you know, you figure it out one year and then the next year it's, it's irrelevant. 
but but each festival has a character and a, a purpose and a, a goal and you know where you are in your career where what the film is all these different things weigh into that you know they need to sell tickets <laughs> so you know and they need they need to get press releases and they need to make sure that big sales happen at their festival right. and um, it helps if there's that, recognizable people in the movies that will come to the festival that they can of put course or, or something or something and, and by the way i'm not saying the movies aren't good that's that's the baseline the movies are good right so just the movies are good but you only have x amount of spots so how do you program you know, and there are many ways that they can make a splash with each film. I think that that's something to think about with your film is it kind of has to be splash worthy. You know, is it is it the zeitgeisty film? Is it the shocking film? Is it the star studded film? Is it the first time director that got plucked out of Idaho film? You know what I mean? Like it has to have a thing. Yeah. Love plucking directors out of Idaho. And the, yeah, I know. Right. And the thing is, look, all, all these things that you notice, these patterns that you notice are not rules. They're all flexible and breakable, but I think it helps to be mindful, especially when, you know, setting expectations and maintaining, you know, good mental health in this industry, <laughs> you know, knowing what you're really what you're really up against. But but so I, I think it is interesting to for you to say, okay, I have an understanding of the landscape of these festivals and I understand my movie, right? Or, you know, Rust Creek, you understand. And seeing that it's not exactly like a home run for any of those festivals, it's not, it doesn't have the things that you just described maybe. So the decision is just like, okay, well, let's just like figure out the other way to go about things, right? Yeah. And of course you enter anyway. I mean, nobody's (laughs) going to turn down getting into Sundance, you know, actually that's not true. I think, I think um, it depends on what your strategy is and what your film is, but it's unlikely. So yes, of course you apply and you make your best effort. But in terms of, you know, moderating your expectations, while we were hopeful, I don't think the path was a huge surprise. Um, and, I, and I wonder if, like I said, if, if we could have saved some time by just skipping festivals entirely. And so then with the distribution route, I think it's then kind of something where you're just weighing perhaps the places that you have really established relationships between yourself and your production team and all of that stuff. Is that what yeah, you're and the sales agent? Yeah. Agent, so we had a right? sales agent for both of my films. So for Kelly and Callow's ICM and for, for Russ Creek, it was Gersh. And, you know, they do what they do is they use their relationships and their knowledge of the market and everything to try and find a home for it. But certainly the filmmakers relationships matter too. And so Kelly and Cal, that was your first feature, right? Yeah. Yeah. And were you on these films? Were you a producer also? Were you a director for hire? How how did you get involved in this? So it's a little Kelly and Cal started at an alumni program at USC. It was this really cool program called USC First Team, and it was started by three alumni. The idea was to foster feature films amongst the alumni. So they kind of they put the word out. They're like, look, we're we're looking for thirty writers, thirty producers, and thirty directors. And we'll organize a scrum to pair you guys and and hopefully some movies will come with us. And I got in as a director. My writer got in as a writer. And um, basically, they had certain milestones that you had to 
to me. And as long as you met those milestones, you could continue. They didn't. How, how get did involved. you get in? As I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you have a master's. You went. You were in the graduate program at USC. I was in the graduate program, and then I applied. They had this application thing. You apply for for this program. It doesn't exist anymore. It only lasted two years, and it's really a shame because I think ten produced feature films came out of it that year. Whoa. It's a major deal. Yeah. Uh, considering they started with 30. So basically the, the milestones were pretty great. They were like, the first thing was you have to find a team that has a writer, producer, and director. And the second thing was you have to come up with a legal contract. Uh, you have to have a first draft by this date, second draft by this date, a production plan by this date, ready to sell by this date. That's it. That's all it was. And if you didn't make the deadlines, you were out. I mean, the first draft is of the script, right? So it's, is, I mean, I'm assuming the writer is doing most of that work to yeah, yeah. get to that point. So, so when I met Amy, Amy Lowe Starbin wrote Kelly and Cal. We completely hit it off. I loved her. I loved her voice. The script that I read of hers, I didn't um, want to make, but I was like, what else are you interested in making? And that's when she said, well, I have like 30 pages of this, this movie, Kelly and Cal. And I was like, all right, let's look at that. So... I really liked the idea. I thought it was a film that I could get excited about and, and make well. So we spent, I don't know, a few months, me developing it with her, um, writing it. And then when the script was done, um, the producer that we went through the program with, she ended up not staying attached because she just, she didn't have the ability to get it made, um, which is fine. Um, but she gave us her blessing and we went on and I found producers um, and those were spring pictures out of uh, New York. And, you know, when it comes to building a career, there's so much you don't have control of. I, I look at directing. I think I've said this before on Twitter, but directing is not about power. It's about influence and amassing influence, whether that be on set, in a meeting, in your career. And so with Kelly and Cal, what happened was I, you know, I didn't know anybody. So, I, sorry, I hold like, on. I, I want to let, yeah. let's let's dig in on that a little bit because I think that's a really interesting, powerful statement that I'd I'd just love for you to elaborate on a little bit more. On the influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, especially when you're working on movies where it's not your money, you're not actually the boss. You're a boss, but you're not the boss. Right, you're plugged into the hierarchy. Yeah, and you're 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 high up there, but you, you're not the dear leader. But if you want to have the last say on things, you have to negotiate your way into that and understanding. Okay, these are the three things that I need to have say on. Where can I give everywhere else so that I can get those three things? And who do I? You know, it's it's it's. And what's uh, an example of a thing like a casting or a final cut? Or yeah, location it, could or be, something? it could be casting. It could be hiring. It could be, um, you know, whatever it is. But every time you are doing something that everyone is not one hundred percent aligned on, you're spending some of your capital. Basically, it's just something to keep in mind. You can't just go in and boss everybody. I mean, you can. But it's uh, maybe it works. Sometimes it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if you have a track, the the longer track record you have, right, and the more prestigious it is, maybe the well, to, to the Jen's more point. capital I guess you're building, right? The more yeah, influence, yeah, you, you the have. more influence. Yeah, have. that's yeah. that's what it is. That's what it is. If you come in with seven feature films and five Academy Awards, you have amassed a certain amount of influence, um, which you can you know cash in at will. So you were saying that in relation to Kelly and Cal. You have Juliet Lewis is in that movie, right? Juliet Lewis. Yeah, Juliet Lewis. So. Yeah, she. Yeah, and I just adore her. So, oh, I know what I was going to say. So, I was talking about like what you have control over and what you don't have control over. And with Kelly and Cal, you know, 
I, I didn't really know any producers, but I told my writer, I was like, I will get this made. And so I, you know, would call everybody I knew. And well, first we got the vibe of the script. We knew people liked it. We knew people liked my work. We're like, okay, that's a good start. We have essentially a package, you know, take that package to one person and see what their feedback is. And if it, you know, this is, a, was at the time when, um, I forget what year this was. Let's see, I, I finished USC at 2005. I think we did Kelly and Cal in like 2010 maybe. And um, there was no money. Like there was no money for indie film. So what we were hearing a lot was love the script, love the film. I don't have money right now. Or love the script, um, love the idea. We, we, can we come on board as producers and when we can raise the money, we can do it. And I was like, well, that doesn't work. How much money were you trying to raise? Did you have like a number? Ish. And I, I think that's fair to be, to have an ish number. You know, it's like, it can be done for within here. I won't right. go below this. Yeah. You can and say there's no need for it to be above X, but it wasn't going to be that, like that, a, it was closer to a million dollars than $10,000. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So then this is, this is where the, what you don't have control over literally out of blue air, out of thin air. I got a call from Mandy Tagger and Adia's Roni of Spring Pictures. And they're like, hi, I'm Mandy and Adia from Spring Pictures. Um, we saw your, your film on the festival circuit, a short film I had done. Was, was playing really well on festivals at the time. And we were just calling to see if, if you had a feature you wanted to make. <laughs> and, and I was when, like, when you say playing really well, would it play in one here. of those four festivals that you mentioned? Like, do you know where they, these producers saw it? I guess is maybe the more direct question. I think, well, in retrospect, I believe one of their husbands saw it at the Florida Film Festival. Yeah. And then again, at I Sonoma. You, That's a good I'll one. Tell you, the Florida Film good Festival one. has come up in the last five conversations we've had on this podcast. It's Super so fun funny. One. So funny yeah. how that's happening. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, they called me and I was like, this is a joke. Like, this can't be real. I was like, yeah, sure. I want to make a movie. So I was like, look, you know, I have this movie, Kelly and Cal. I was about to come to terms with another producer, but I was like, it's not, it's not signed yet. We don't have a deal. Do you want to read it? And they're like, yes, let's read it. Sent it over. I think a week later they called me. They're like, we want to make this movie. They flew me to New York a couple of weeks later. We were shooting within like eight months, Wow, six months. It was nuts. They, they saw your short. They liked the direction. They were looking for up and coming directors. They were looking for up and coming directors to make, they had finance and they were looking to make movies within a certain budget. And I lucked out. And were they looking for a certain genre of movie or anything or just kind of? Uh, you know, I actually don't know. I mean, I assume given what we ended up making, they were probably looking, you know, indie drama, dramedy and seeing what they've done since then comedy i mean but you know indie okay cool yeah i mean it's uh, unfortunately it's not replicable but <laughs> right right but there are teachable moments right because i think the thing that it would be easy to to hear that story and be like oh well that she just got lucky but you also had a script right you had shorts that were already out there and you had the chutzpah to be like yeah no like let's read it it's ready to go i, I had a plan it. and i yeah. knew what i needed and what i wanted and I was very specific about that. I think, you know, a lot of people think they know what they need and they want, but it's actually not very specific. You know, saying you want to be a director, well, what kind of director? 
You know, that, that's, that's, there's a million different answers to that question. So I don't know how you make a decision about what you do with your time on a daily basis if you don't know the answer to that question. But, and I, you know, I've, I had hustled for a long time too. So, you know, in order to get that script, I had to first get into that, you know, alumni program. In order to get into that alumni program, I had to give them three pitches and my bio and a letter of recommendation, all this bullshit, you know? So like, one of the things that one of my instructors at NYU, when I studied there, Paul Ursioli said, um, actually, this is not going to be a perfect quote, but it was something along the lines of, when you're not working, you have to work harder so that when the opportunity comes, you're prepared to accept it. Yeah, that's great. That's right. great. And also, all those times that you talked to producers and almost attached people and got rejected and everything, you they force you to make a presentation that you, you know, that oh. was ready, right? Totally. So by the time I mean, I pictures calls. It's I not like, oh, I'm going to get it together. It's already together. No. Oh, it was ready. We had a budget. We had a script. We had a schedule. I had a lookbook. It was like, let's go. You can make it. And we did. Let me ask so, you did you have a business plan? And do you think that's important at all for indie films? I mean, we did. But again, this is this comes back to me being very, very lucky is I've never had to be a producer on my movies. So I don't. I, I mean, honestly, with that one, I, I don't think they cared. I, yeah. I doubt they cared. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it was a script that fit for, into their budget. It, they, that was a financier. I feel like business plans are for, like, uh, private equity, right? Like, if you're going to a bunch of dentists and you're like, this is how I'm going to get your money back, right? But a financier... They're in the film. Is what? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> look, the paperwork says they're not getting their money. Yeah, back. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but a financier thinks they know how to make money off of your movie already, and they're just out and looking for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, and you know, that's the other thing. You always have to know what people are looking. There's always somebody that needs what you have. You just have to figure out what that is and who that is. You know, some rich people want to have dinner with a star. That's why they'll fund a movie or they want to. Yeah, that's why I became a director. Somebody's bored and they want to have, yeah, totally. And they want to have something to do on the weekend, you know, or they want to impress their friends or or they love cinema. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, and I think, and kind of all of the above. And I think actually, specifically with private equity, understanding that and knowing that and acknowledging it, like because film is such a risky investment, like being able to say like, it's, here are the ways in which it is cool. Does that sound good to you? I think is actually. I, I mean, it all comes down to just treating people like human beings, understanding that a financier is a person with with desires and agendas and needs and wants, and being uh, attentive enough to hear what those things are. So, were you at the same time that you were making this feature and hustling and stuff? Were you working? Did you have like a day job in the film industry? Oh yeah, I, I so. When I got out of uh, NYU, my undergrad, I worked, I started, my first job was as a receptionist at a commercial production company. It was this production services company called Johnson Burnett in New York. I don't think they exist anymore. And then I worked at A Band Apart, which was oh, sure. Tarantino. Wait, and, what, yeah. what years did you work at A Band Apart? Well, I, well, you know, in New York, it was only there for like a minute. Oh, right. Um, right. I was thinking of the uh, other uh, I had a, my college roommate was an intern at a band apart, which is why I asked. Oh, really? I wonder if, <laughs> yeah. So I was there at uh, 95, maybe? Yeah. That was, was a cool office. Anyway, so then that, I, I think literally the office was open for nine months and for some reason they shut it down. So I was out of work. I went freelance, did PA jobs, then coordinated, then production managed, then then produced. So by the time I came out to LA, 
I, you know, had a, if I wanted a career as a commercial UPM and, and producer. Were you in the DGA as a UPM? No, you know, commercial production managers are not in the DGA. It's something that I think is really uh, a missed opportunity for both the production supervisors and, well, that's the thing. We call ourselves, they would call us production supervisors, so we didn't use the title UPM. But um, I think it's a missed opportunity for both the DJ and the production supervisors. Um, But anyway, when I got out of SC, I figured I would just do that as my day job. And unfortunately, if you leave for three years, nobody knows who you are anymore and you don't have any contacts and you're on the opposite coast. And, you know, so I had to step back into coordinating again, did that a couple of times, worked back up to UPMing and uh, did that probably until a year before Rust Creek. Oh, wow. And so you were directing your own shorts kind of on the side. You were making a living as a production manager production supervisor on commercials. Um, yeah. And and never the twain shall meet. Like the people in production had no idea that I was a director and filmmakers had, I mean, I, I guess they knew I worked in commercials, but nobody really cared. No one cares. Yeah. Which is, I like that better because I tell you every time you meet somebody on set and they're like, well, I'm actually a director, but oh, you're like, I don't care. I need you to go I... pick up the trash right now, please. <laughs> yes. Direct that trash into the trash can and yeah, that bag yeah. into the trash can. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, it's like they feel like like they want you to ask them for like notes or something, you know, like oh, like maybe it's time to no. I think it's going to me. It gets I, I want to know. I, I want to know what their dreams are, and I want to know how I can help them. But also, you know, like do you, you? do want <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Look, Wait, no, really, do you? Yeah, that's why I have I this do. podcast. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I love hearing. I don't know. I'll tell you what. When I'm on my 14th hour and. You know, no, I'm getting not screamed at by hour. three agency people. I don't give a shit what the PA is working on. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it right now, but I do. I, I like to know. And that, like, well, you know, that's a good point. So that's actually a really good point that I think filmmakers, especially aspiring filmmakers, need to understand. There is a time and a place. You know, when you're hired to do a job, you do that job. And when you have built a relationship with people, then you have a conversation about other things. Um, but people frequently misunderstand that or confuse them or force the situation. And it's, it's just not appropriate. It's, it, you know, it doesn't work. Yeah. But I think like a young PA is, is one thing, but if I hear that like our Dolly grip directed a music video over the weekend, to me, that means that when he is being a Dolly grip on set, he cares about getting a cool shot, you know? As oh, opposed totally. to like just phoning it in. And so to, to me, I, I, you know, I think we all work in this business because we love creative people and love talking about creative stuff that our, you know, family is sick of hearing us talk about. So to me, <laughs> yeah. when the gaffer's like, this is really cool. I, I just did this, this job a couple of weeks ago and the gaffer, it was like a, the Santa Claus related thing. And the gaffer was like, man, that Santa guy is like so good. He's like such a good Santa. <laughs> Um, it, it, for real awesome. though when your crew so likes happy. the thing you're making yeah. it does make you so like that's so much better than an agency note like if client oh, is like oh, oh we love 100%. it like and and then the gaffer is like dude sick <laughs> but, but you gotta keep in mind too like it, it, where i was working first of all i was working really you know like 
uh, budgets that were between like 500,000 and a million dollar yeah, commercials. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's only so many people that do those jobs and I needed to pay my rent. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, nobody wants two directors on a set. That That is a hundred percent true. Um, and also like band apart just for listeners at home, that was Tarantino's commercial company. Right. So this is like cool kids club, right? Like these directors are pretty rich and like pretty like hoity toity. But also, you know that I mean? was a time when you were working when early two thousands. That oh, it was great. But, it was but great. you were like, that was when directors were kind of assholes, right? <laughs> right? Or is yeah, that but not you true? know, I really, I no, they totally were. They were total dicks. But you know, I I kind of didn't care. It wasn't. It had nothing to do with me. My feeling was always, as long as I understand what you need, cool. But if you're going to have a temper tantrum for not communicating your wants, I don't really give a shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, for sure. You know. Right, but so, weren't they, isn't that the time when, like, they'd, like, throw a burrito against <laughs> the wall because it had onions in it? How dare they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the props department had cocaine and, the, you know, it was ridiculous. <laughs> and, and the music videos, there were tons but of it music was videos fake and everybody was bringing guns and hookers and it was bananas. Um, but it was a really good time to you know, make a living in that business. I never had to look for work. It was constantly busy in New York. Let me ask, did it, did it inform your filmmaking now? Do you feel like you learned things that like you kind of picked up little things here and there, or was it more purely just like, you know, understanding a certain type of the business and, and making ends meet? I think it informs who I am as a filmmaker. I'm not sure it informs my creative. It definitely informs the way I look at the industry the way I look at the business, because I quite like the business, it definitely informs the way I work on set. I like to work fast. I, I'm not intimidated by big crews or toys or anything. Like, you know, like, and I've said this to people before, but like when I showed up on Kelly and Cal and there were two grips, I was like, I don't, what? That's crazy. <laughs> you know, I don't know. What do you do without 10 grips? You know, I don't know. But that that is being a producer, being exposed to production, I think, to me, like, when, when you're first starting out in film, one of the best things to do, I mean, that's so obvious, just being on set and something that I would do that I think annoyed many people. I wouldn't go to the director and tell them I want to be a director too, but I would ask like the gaffer, <laughs> like, how much true. does this light cost? I, I've known you for years now. I'm for sure you told the, a couple of directors you want to be a director. <laughs> I didn't tell them I wanted to direct, but I might have put them on my email list for my YouTube videos. <laughs> Um, Look, I think it's, you know what you're hitting at that I think is really important. It's very important to get comfortable on set. You need, you know, like for me, being on set is so comfortable. I I could show up in pajamas and I'd be fine. Like it's just where I lived for a long time. I was on hundreds and hundreds of sets. So that's helpful. Uh, The other thing that's really helpful for me as a director is I understand budgets. I understand that those are- creative documents that have consequence. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but if I want X and I see the money's being spent on Y, I can say, actually, I don't need that, but I want it over here. And that's not always something that directors know. Yeah, yeah, no, I call it rearranging the the deck chairs, right? Like, you know, like sometimes directors are, or producers don't want to tell directors like what's budgeted where or how much money they really have. And that, it really, it feels like they're trying to maybe like shelter you or something like that, like trying to coddle you. But like knowing that you have, you know, X thousands of dollars in camera means that you can kind of like 
do some horse trading and maybe art is more important probably like move move that money around yeah a or, bit, or this location or that you know whatever it is it, it, i think it also puts now it's particularly useful when i'm talking about bigger you know taking meetings on bigger films and taking meetings on television i think it puts people at ease to know that i understand that sort of thing that side of thing yeah though i've i've definitely annoyed producers with that too where i'm like uh yesterday you said we can't have the steady cam guy even though i could get someone out here for 400 bucks and now we're having a two thousand dollar <laughs> client dinner at a restaurant oh, ordering all oh this stuff God. that we don't oh even we're not even eating like, wrap gifts wrap gifts oh wrap <laughs> gifts break my heart every time i see a wrap gift i'm like that's an extra shot i could have had why are we doing wrap gifts yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, that's not people that love those answer. water bottles. Though, Jen. I, know, they, I know. I do like it when people have like a hoodie or like a like a fleece. Yeah, that, are that's good. a pretty good wrap. Anyway, well, so um, I, I guess the obvious question just before we move on to the next movie. So, sorry, man. I keep trying to <laughs> keep trying to squeeze this one in is like, what about directing commercials while you were, you know, in that world? Uh, was that not anything that you were ever interested in? So I didn't really realize this until much later, but I didn't ever see it as a possibility. It didn't occur to me. For me, it was, I didn't really know this, but I saw that as such a day job, like such, this is where I make my money. And in 20 years of doing that job, I only ever saw three women directors, two of whom were like, you know, some toy commercial, and then you never saw them again. And the other was Peggy Serrata, who's amazing. You know, I, I didn't see, it just, it, did, it didn't occur to me that I could do that. Um, also, the bits that I love about directing, commercial directors don't get to oh, do. Which is what, say, we're on our hundredth shot, open the champagne yeah. bottle. Casting, editing, like, you know, the score, the sound design, they get to shoot, but... Uh, you know, to me, shooting is collecting content. It's collecting the tools and the and the material that you're going to use to put the film together. Shooting is not making the film. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And for all of you listeners out there that are like, oh, I'm just going to get into commercials to uh, own my well, skills and make thing. a little bit of it's money. A whole, uh, it, uh, it's a whole separate career. And it takes a whole separate career amount of dedication. And in the beginning, you're making just as shit money as you would make an indie film anyway. So you might as well do the thing you want to do. Do the thing you want to do. Yeah. I, I think also, especially back in the day, the difference between a commercial director and a filmmaker were so drastic. It was like it, the same way that TV, a TV filmmaker and like an indie filmmaker, never them they shall meet, right? Yeah, um, that's true. But but now that's not the case. Now people cross over, you know, um, and I think like you know in the two thousands that was beginning to happen more significantly. But it, there was yeah, still a little only... bit of stigma on it, you know. Like the like, band apart, I think existing actually was is, is proof that the transition was happening, right? But but yeah, it was and still I think when I was there, I was mostly thing. working for music video directors. I think the only commercial directors that I worked with that did features was the Scott brothers, of course, and Joe Pitka. And he did space jam or something, you know, like they, they just seemed like two different worlds. Yeah. Matt and I both work in commercials and, you know, we, we both kind of segued into commercials on accident. Um, I think through branded content, which is where, right, which is kind of it's inter- different intersect. now. Like that didn't that didn't exist before when I when I was doing that. Like it just they like you said they were totally separate. Yeah, 
Well, so, okay, so you uh, made Kelly and Cal, did, uh, well, you were still working as a commercial producer or in the, you know, in production on commercials. Um, and then how did Rust Creek come to exist? So, uh, and by the way, I have never been poorer than during and right after shooting a feature film. So, um, yeah, aim at the truth. Right? We, we, my husband and I joke that, that every, you know, accolade or award or great press piece also is accompanied by a low balance alert from the bank. <laughs> um, well, it's crazy. You, I think to me, kind of like if you're making that under a million dollar feature, the director is usually paid somewhere between like five and $25,000. Right? I know it's a big range. Yeah, that, but, that, that's right. But yeah. let's say it's even 25,000, that kind of the higher end of the range that a director would get paid on their own feature. Um, yeah, how long are you going to live on yeah. that in New York? Can you live LA? on 25 grand for two years? Exactly. In California, it's just it, it, And then travel with your film, you know, and like uh, take advantage of all of your hard work. Like if you're not at a festival to schmooze with people and collect the award and to meet that next producer and the next investor, then it's all for naught, right? So it's not Yeah, just and by the way, like I really, I, I like talking about the business of filmmaking because I, I think it's, I think, there's a lot of like secretness and shame about money for directors. Um, you're going to be poor for a while and you're going to be poor for longer than your other counterparts are. You know, it, it's just the way it is. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong when, with that. When that's, you say counterparts, you mean structure. your DP Producers, friends, your editor DPs, friends, everybody. editors, yeah. yeah. Executives. Um, and that, that doesn't mean you're not a good director. It, it just is a different path. It is interesting. I had, when I first moved to LA, one of my really good friends went to AFI and I would work on all her short films and stuff. And you see everyone from her class and like all the DPs, a hundred percent of them are like making good money, working on huge things that you've heard of. Uh, Rachel Morrison was like in her class and stuff, you know, all these like amazing people. Uh, you look at the production designers, they're only like five or something. They're all working on huge things. Um, then you How look at the directors doing the directors. <laughs> so Drake Doremus was in her class. And I'm trying to think of anyone else that we've heard of them because we, you know, follow this business very closely. But there were 30 directors in her year. And I don't know, you know, they're all they're all doing something. A lot of them work in different parts of the industry. A lot of them have left the industry. Um, But when you look at the numbers, the ratios of the successful, you know, more technical roles versus the directors and writers you know it's the directors are it's the lowest chance of of making it building a sustaining <laughs> career you know unless they hit right away they're last which is fine it, but i just think it helps to know that you know and, and by the way the other thing it helps to know is personally i don't know anyone that makes a living off of independent film if they if they tell you they're making a living off of independent film, I would ask them where their additional finances are coming from. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's important to elaborate on though, because I you know it's that's a tricky thing to say because certainly it is true that it is really really hard to make m- any meaningful amount of money making an independent film, right? But also there is that halo effect, right? Of you know, Jen, like you direct television now, right? Like and you do make your living on that stuff. So it's it's a tricky thing to like advocate for people making their own independent movies. I think it's still a thing that is worthwhile and important and a big step. Absolutely. People. Yes. But, but, but to think like, Oh, I'm going to make all of my money back and then some, and I'm the house in the Hills is thanks to the Sundance darling. Isn't a reality. 
most it, it, you know it's a reality for a very very small fraction and unfortunately that's the those are the stories that we elevate and and they're not replicable so uh, all that does is create i think angst sure a little fomo right but uh, you do yeah. hear about like like the jd dillards or someone that made a really low budget indie film and then are directing like a star wars yeah you sure know? i mean you know good look if that happens to you that's wonderful i would not you know like take out a mortgage on on the plan of that Right, right. But um, but then, yeah, I mean, I guess our podcast is a, about a little bit talking to people like you that actually, you know, just because you didn't get the Star Wars after Kelly and Cal doesn't mean you didn't get, you know, a Twilight Zone episode or right. Like, there's like no, so, and, and so many way, spaces like, in between. Yeah, I, I didn't you know, I didn't make my living solely as a director until the year after Russ Creek. You know, and I'm 44. Yeah. So I, I think you say it's after Rust Creek, you mean after you shot it or after it came out? Yeah, after it came out. That's the other thing you forget. You shoot <laughs> a movie, there's a year <laughs> where nobody oh. knows about it. You shot this great movie. That's um, probably the hardest year of UPMing, too, hard. right? Like, that's the year where you're like, oh, God. Dude, there, there was this movie called Bellflower. Do you guys remember it? It was this awesome movie. It premiered at South by Southwest. The director, his name is Gavin something. He, uh, I remember I, I'd seen the movie. It came out the same time as Another Earth. Do you guys remember that movie? Also like a no budget AFI film with a- uh, Britt Marling. Yeah, Britt Marling. Yeah. Really, really excellent film actually. Oh, the same guys okay. that made uh, the Netflix series, the, the OA. Uh, oh, the OA, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Bellflower, Evan Gladell. Yes, Evan Gladell. And I saw him, he was on, remember Carson Daly used to have his night show, like late night show, and he was at South by Southwest and he was in, interviewing Evan Gladell because his movie Bellflower came out, it was a huge hit. And he's like, what's next? And Evan Gladell's like, I don't know. He's like, well, are you guys flying back to LA or something? And he's like, no, we're driving. We can't, we literally don't have enough money to fly back to LA. <laughs> I know. And P. Diddy walks by on the street. He's like, what's going on here? What's up, Carson? <laughs> And he's like, oh, we're interviewing this this director, uh, Evan Gladell. He's so poor, he can't even like fly back, uh, even though he has a movie here. And Pete Diddy's like, oh, really? He like takes out like five hundred bucks and like gives it to him. Oh like, walks man, <laughs> so crazy. Anyway, nice all this and to say, I made this like Lifetime movie like very soon after that, and uh, we had one day our makeup artist couldn't make it, and so she sent like a substitute makeup artist. And I was looking at her. I was like, "Have we?" She looked so familiar to me, and I couldn't figure out where I knew her from. And I, I was like, "Have we met before? Have we worked together?" She's like, "No, I, I don't think so." She was the main actress from this movie, Bellflower. <laughs> and and I and when I realized that, like at the end of the day, I was telling everyone, "I was like, this is the." Have you guys seen Bellflower? And everyone's like, "No, never heard of it." Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but it's just that's it. It's like you can be the star of the South by movie that like makes a giant splash, and then you're the makeup artist on the sub makeup artist. That's okay. Yeah. That's all yeah. okay. That's okay is that, the important thing for sure. That's, yes, that's all okay. That's how these careers get built. It, 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 you know, if you don't come from industry family or you don't come from independent resources, that's what this is. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. And ideally, you can find some sort of way of uh, keeping the lights on that also perhaps informs your filmmaking career in some other way, right? Like maybe you learn, um, you know, how, how production works or you become a better editor. Or things. There is a lot of craft that is involved in filmmaking. And even if you can't necessarily 
direct full time all the time, there are a lot of other ways that you can kind of improve that toolkit. Absolutely. And, and, and the reverse too, you know, if people get stressed out being around the industry that they're not, that they feel they're not participating in, you can always do some, you know, I don't know, you're a graphic designer or something, but the important thing is to just keep moving forward um, because you have to keep making stuff because every time you make something, it opens up opportunities that you did not have before that existed. I think that's a great segue to the other topic I really am curious to hear your thoughts on, which, which is kind of, you know, you're mentioning making things and kind of keeping this heartbeat to, of your career alive. And earlier you talked about directors' main power coming from their influence. And so I've, I found out about you, not through your work necessarily, but through Twitter. I saw that a lot of people retweeting things you said, people responding. I noticed you were talking a lot about directing. You had talked about, you know, directing during COVID and what people think about that. And I I could relate to a lot of the things you said, a lot of political stuff, which I happen to agree with. <laughs> um, but uh, like, I guess I'm curious if you see the so- your social media presence as like related to your career or is just as a fun thing you do on the side? I do. I really do. And I didn't even have Twitter until after... Kelly and Cal. And that was because my manager was like, you got to get social media. I was like, Oh, another thing I have to do. Um, but now, as you know, since we're, you, if we follow one another I'm kind of addicted. Like every time I have a moment, I'm like, Oh, what's this? Or I have a thought, Oh, let's put it out there. But it's been really interesting. It, it, it's one, it's another thing that you put out in the world that people reflect back to you by telling you how they see you. Um, It's another thing that it's like a bat signal, you know, it's a bat signal and you can attract um, great collaborators and also trolls or whatever. But that, I think that's what they mean when they say, put yourself out there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be social media, but you, you have to constantly be present and also people are so busy all the time. I mean, when, when you, like if I were to ask you guys right now, you know, hey, I need a DP who can shoot a $5 million film. Can you give me three names, right? You're going to think of the three people who you probably spoke with this year, right? Because they just, they're just in your mind. So you have to be on people's minds. I keep a um, spreadsheet actually. For career oh, recommendations. I do too. <laughs> so, but I'm is, yours, like, is yours color coded? Oh, Jen, look at that level. Matt's up. colorblind. Thanks for bring. Thanks for bringing it up, Jen. <laughs> yeah, it's all black color-coded, and white. Color coded, absolutely. No. <laughs> no. You know why? Because I have a horrible memory, so I forget, mm-hmm. and then I'm yeah. like, do I remember that person because I liked them or because I hated them? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, especially on short-term jobs, right? If you're doing a commercial, it's really easy to kind of lose track of who did what. So, Um, but yeah, I think that's really interesting, Jen, about the social media of it all. Did you have you found that it is beyond just sort of like the amplification of your voice and the the bat signal of it all? Do you find that it's helped your career in any tangible ways, or is it more just kind of? It has. No, it has. I have had producers reach out to me. I have had uh, writers reach out to me, you know, and you also get things that are, are not helpful and that's fine. It, it, it really has been helpful. And, and, you know, I think we were joking about this before we went live, but like, you know, my husband a lot is like, he's not on social and he cringes sometimes when he sees what I, what I put, he's like, are you really? And I'm like, oh, whatever, you know, but when you are authentic 
you will you will you will repel the people who don't you don't want to be around anyway so it's kind of okay i went into i went into a production company once and um i was really excited it was a meeting i was really excited about and the the young woman at the front desk who was like the the assistant and she was doing answering the phones she kind of was looking at me funny and i was like what is going like did i did i have something on my shirt like you know and then later the executive told me that um the reason i was in that meeting is because uh her assistant followed me on twitter and she kept telling her executive that she has to bring me in and so she knew me but look i'm sure the other thing happens too where people are like don't work with jen but i i think it's important to to strike a tone um that is trustworthy i you will never hear me talking shit about another filmmaker or another another film um, I will never identify anyone directly if it's at all critical. I mean, in politics, of course, but, you know, not not in work. Um, I, I really believe in calling people in and not calling people out when it comes to that. Um, this is my professional work, and I take that very seriously. Well, what I find interesting about your Twitter feed and... I think I've been following you for maybe like a month or two, so it, it could be of the moment. I don't know, uh, but I'm going to do an analysis on the types of tweets oh, that, this is that you tweet. Uh, I kind of, I, and they seem pretty even, these four different types. I'd say about, they oh, each that's good. come up about 25% of your feed. Um, so about 25% is political, you know, about kind of interesting things happening in politics. Obviously, it ramps up, I'm sure, during... Uh, election. God, I really <laughs> hope that will ramp down soon. Like I'm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 25 is political. 25% is self-promotion. Like, Hey, Russ Creek is doing really well. People are telling me, and I have a question about that because my, I'm like 90% self-promotion. And I think that might be a bad ratio. Um, 25% is kind of just having fun with what's going on on Twitter. Like name a movie that does that, you know, kind of like the, the, the Twitter games of it all in the film community. And about 25% observations as a director on the industry or on the craft. That, that's good to hear. I think I'm, I'm comfortable and okay with that. I think that's, um, that feels good to me because what I think that that shows is somebody kind of can get a feel for me, which is important. I mean, look, when you're hiring people, when you're working with people, you need to understand what they feel like to be around. You're going to be around this person for, you know, 12 hours a day. Uh, do you want to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, or and I think probably to what I imagine your point is going to be about with the the uh, self promotion thing. You know, the name of the game is always just going to be uh, what value are you adding to the conversation, yes. right? And so yeah. I think there's one thing of like, hey, check out my movie, right? Which sometimes you just have to do. Sometimes it's straight up like That's it's right. out right now. Do me a favor, get I like rate it on uh you know pre order it now, rate it on iTunes, whatever. Sometimes you just got to do that. Right, right. Yeah, but, yeah, but it for is. the most like, part, uh, for the most part, you're 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 not just self promoting, but you're at, you know explaining something about the craft if that's your audience or you know you're being e- even even when you say hey will you rate this on iTunes you're probably kind of explaining this is why it's important to filmmakers. And that does have value and education, educational value to people who don't maybe understand how a a recommendation algorithm works, for instance. I very intentionally and mindfully try to do that. I think that you'll find the only time where I outright say, 
you know, this is happening is when I have something that is outright this second. Um, you know, that week where you, you just have to get the numbers up and the word out. And, and that is your, your job that week. But other than that, I kind of feel like social media is very much like how I see my audience for my movies is I'm giving them something, you know? Otherwise, why does anybody follow you? Right. Do you recommend one-liners? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, do you recommend that other filmmakers get involved? Like you're, you have. I guess the other thing is like you know you're a verified tweeter, um, and you have. Yeah, but done... I think that I think that happened when it was easy to happen. Oh, is it, it not was easy? Like change, not yeah. No. I don't know. I don't know. It's like I'm, a, thing, I'm afraid to try um i really don't you don't but, want no more rejection yeah I, i'm used to it re- i've gotten enough rejection in other parts of my life i don't need uh what's the twitter guy's name jack yeah tell me i'm not oh. i'm not me <laughs> yeah, telling yeah. You um, no. don't worry it's a computer it'll figure yeah. it just decides whether you're important enough yeah. uh, oh really but yeah. so uh so you you've done tv shows people have heard of you have a movie on netflix all this stuff do you how important do you think it is for someone who's like earlier on in their career to kind of put out their brand and their name and and this the heartbeat kind of on online to you know to say Here's like hey I this would, is what I, I think would, about filmmaking I would never give another filmmaker advice period because I don't know their situation I don't Jen, know the you're time on a has changed <laughs> Like I know, I know, but I'll, uh, what teasing, I can I'm say teasing. is, no, I, is what either does or doesn't work for me. You know, like I, I can tell you that, and that that worked at a specific time at a specific place with a specific thing, um, and I think everybody just has to take from that what they will. Also, if you're not a social person, social media might not be the place for you. Yeah, um, I think you're playing be, to your strengths is important, right? Like clearly, you're you're gifted at Twitter, so of course you're flourishing there. Of course, it's fun, right? I, I once had a um, manager say to me, every time you answer the phone, you're in such a good mood. And I'm like, well, I don't answer it when I'm in a shitty mood. <laughs> you yeah. know? So I see it's like, your name. So you're either calling to fire me, which I'm hoping you won't because of my mood, or you're calling to tell me about an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, if you're in a shitty mood, don't go to a party, you know, like yeah, yeah. keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the exact opposite of my mom's method of answering the phone. She's like, I'm in the middle of a funeral. Can I call you back? But what do you, what do you want? Actually, they're not. Yeah, I'm in line to. It's fine. It hasn't even started the yet. Yeah. They're just warming up. Um. <laughs> uh, so I guess the my kind of final question about the social media presence and your career is, do you find like, how do you save time to kind of do the deep work to like work on the treatments to find the produce to write the scripts, you know, um, when you have the distraction of Twitter and like, I'm assuming other people, uh, hitting you up know. all the time I, since you're kind of, honestly, I do, I do it all at the same time. I do it all at the same time. So it's, for me, it's really important to juggle multiple things. Um, like I, I like, depending on what stage a project is in, I like to have three to five projects on my plate. That's so I never get stuck. You know, if I get stuck, I want to go do something else. I'm a big believer in deadlines. I am never late. I never turn anything in after deadline. That is like, get it done, get it out the door. So something else can come in. You know, I can't tell you how many times I, I sit here and I'm like, oh my God, I have nothing on my schedule. I got to read the script. It's Monday. Oh, I'll read it Friday. 
you got to read it now because you got to read it now. You got to get the notes because another script's coming in on Thursday if you're lucky. Well, and they won't uh, continue to come in if you drag your feet on them. So that's a really good point. And this kind of gets back to that, you know, always be making something thing. When you're when you're working now with a team with reps, you need to give them something to sell. You know, you can't be talking about the same thing that you've been talking about for two months. Nobody cares. So let's talk about that a little bit more because I we, we talk about development and we talk about that kind of phase of your career where you're kind of you've got a couple of things going. What does development mean to you? How do you how do you feed your reps things? What do you what sort of ideas are you generating? Like talk to us about it a little bit more. You know, like I did a short film last year because I had a couple of weeks and my friend sent me a script. I was like, I'm not doing anything. Yes. Um, let's do it. Cause I, I felt like I was just about to get it. I knew I was getting into television, you know? So I was like, I'm not going to have the chance to do this again. Yes. Let's do that. Did I need to do another short film? No. Did it give me something to talk about? Yeah. For a week. I just think it's important. It's also, it's also really important if you want to stretch yourself, you know, if you're doing one thing and you want to be doing the other, well, you better show something that proves you can make that jump you know, nobody's going to just let you do action if all you do is romantic comedy. It's, it's not, it doesn't work like that. So I don't know. There's always something to do, but for development, like, I mean, I'm looking at my desk right now. I've got one, two, three, you know, like seven projects in some stage of talking to somebody about something, you know, and some of these are going to take years and some of these will go in the next couple of months. And are they all features? Two series, two features, and a couple of books. Oh, wow. That you would adapt or that you are... Are optioning, thinking about optioning. Oh, cool. And, and by the way, you know, if you ask me this question in two weeks from now, they might be different projects. They might have right. all been killed right. in yeah. some way or another. Or you don't um, say and, yes to all of them, right? Yeah, or something something is annoying and you're like, I don't want to do it anymore. Or, you know, <laughs> something, something happens, you're in a bad mood, I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, but to your point of like, you got to get it read. Re read it and yeah, get it over Yeah, and like, yeah. for me, this is my life. You know, this is my life. From the moment I made my, my first short film and I realized this is what I wanted to do, I was like, all right, you know, I've got 70 years. Let's get on with it, you know? <laughs> and then now I'm 40, so I've got 30 years. So hurry the fuck up. 70 years There's total? How much time? You can, you can go to 80. We'll see. We've, we've seen some filmmakers do it. Uh, yeah, but are they any good? I don't know. They're not. They uh, sell tickets. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so, so kind of bringing us back to Rust Creek, I think, because that was the film correct me if i'm wrong jen but like that was the film that kind of launched you into tv a little bit more and all that but you were saying before that it's it was kind of not a, a slightly longer road than even normal right like normally you make an independent film takes a while the festival circuit distribution all that blah 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 but the the window from your theatrical to your netflix release uh was pretty significant uh to dive in on that like, to explain to us why that so happened a lot how of that out. I don't actually know, but one thing I will say really quickly, it was even longer than that because Kelly and Cal won, premiered at South By, won at South By, got picked up by IFC at South By and had a theatrical. And you know what happened? Nothing. So then I had to do another feature. That's a real hard pill to swallow. So but that was Rust Creek. 
you didn't self-finance that next feature. I guess your first movie, you didn't self-finance either. But was it a little bit easier to get made, at least? Or no? You know, the thing is, second features are a motherfucker. <laughs> because I'll tell Put you that why. Put t-shirt, you're, Jen. Put that on You're old news. Yeah. You're not a discovery anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you're no longer eligible for slam dance. Yeah, but you also there's expectations if your first feature. My, my I was in this weird spot where my first feature did well, but not well enough. So there's expectations, but the, there's not maybe the benefit of, of the first feature. All of these things I did not know, which is sometimes better to not know. You know, just go in naively and confidently and and march forward. But yeah, um, I, I think actually the time of the theatrical release to the Netflix release was because it was making money in these other venues. Oh, interesting. Um, So that's, that was a good thing. And actually because of COVID, I had a second theatrical release. They did a drive-in release and I was like, cool. My understanding is the reason we are on Netflix rather than the more traditional package that, that IFC does with these types of films is because of the numbers that we were showing in other areas. Yeah. I think getting onto Netflix for an indie film, especially is quite difficult nowadays. They do not, it used to be like 10 years ago when my movie was on Netflix that, yeah, if you won a few festivals, you had a pretty good chance of getting into ne- on Netflix. And now yeah, it's like, but you still get to forever say you were on Netflix. So then it becomes like a higher cachet now that it's like hard. <laughs> I guess, but you're only on Netflix for a few years. <laughs> right? I know. I know. Actually, I feel like I feel like filmmakers who got into Sundance in the nineties, I'm like, yeah, but how many films applied? Ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, know, you were the only mini D V movie that year. <laughs> um yeah. Well, cool. So what's so what's uh what's next? Anything fun to share with us? Yeah. I was told before Christmas, but it sounds like not before Christmas about one movie. And um I have a TV TV show that I'm shooting in March that I'm super sorry. I know this is lame, but I can't talk about it. But it's you're doing an episode of? Yeah, and it's really cool. So I'm very excited. I'm curious why you can't say anything. Is it the network doesn't want you to or your reps? Yeah, or? yeah, you know, oh, yeah, everything's like top secret and code names. And, you know, is it because the show is not a show that's out yet? Or you can't even... I, I you can't well, even I, I'll, I, I'll step in and say I that PR, PR is like a thing that... E- is really specific in terms of what they want to release and how they want to release it and that the show exists and what characters exist. And, you know, if we realize that Jen is directing season two of Watchmen and we're on her Instagram and we figure out that this happens or that, I'm just throwing, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't think there's another. No, I see season two of Watchmen. Yeah. But it's, but I guess if you got an episode of, of uh, law and order, but everyone wants a big deal, right? Every PR department's job is to make sure that, NCIS season 35 right is as big of a show as it could possibly be. Yeah. So like you're yeah. diluting their that entire department's ammunition for instance, yeah. right? And then also this town talks, you know, you, like who knows where people are in negotiations on whatever, like there, there's all sorts well, of Well, I know like even on feature films, you know, even in their fe- indie feature films, producers do not like it when stuff gets out because then everybody knows how old it is, how long it took you to get it to market. Right. I remember when we, when my feature was about to come out and I, we had done a couple of small interviews about it. And then like deadline was like, oh, well, it's already kind of been scooped by these other, you know, 
ain't it cool news like, or whatever. What? We're not going to write about it. Yeah. And you're like, are I, you now, serious? <laughs> I don't think we've talked about that on the show, but like you shouldn't put your cast on IMDb because that counts as an official release and then it doesn't it's not an exclusive quote unquote anymore and so like a lot of press outlets will be pissed off and not write about your movie yeah the ticker starts i mean what i understand is that you really shouldn't mention it until it's just about to come out so at all you shouldn't put it on imdb you shouldn't do anything and sometimes they say that explicitly and sometimes it's just like unsaid but like yeah you know. i heard of a producer who who puts in contracts that with the crew that is like you get back end points however if anything leaks from you you lose them yeah sure there you go yeah i signed a contract on a show that said it was an nda that said that i technically am not even allowed to admit that i worked on the show ever ever i know what show that is yeah which means he told you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Real awesome stuff. I highly recommend not only for people to watch Rust Creek, which I will do on Netflix, but also to follow Jen. I am Jen McGowan. Is that? I am Jen McGee. Oh, you're Oren, actually. It's a little confusing. Oh, by the way, I looked into Dad changing my Twitter handle. And? And all the ones I want are taken. But it's easy to change. It, it Well, it's easy to change, but it's like, are you sure you want to change your Twitter yeah, handle? Yeah, it's and like a I was process. Like, no, I guess not. <laughs> um, <laughs> also, if you search my name, if you search Oren Kaplan in Twitter, I think I'm the first result that comes up. That's good. Even though, because my, my Twitter handle is at Smitey Pileg. It has like nothing to do with, and it was a character from a short film I made like 100 years ago. Anyway, if you want to keep tabs yeah. on what Jen is doing... Her Twitter account. <laughs> hey, I think people are following my Twitter saga of why I have such a dumb Twitter handle. Um, um, anyhow, okay. Well, yes. before we say goodbye, Jen, do you have a, a few minutes to hang out and endorse with us? Yeah, yeah. Unpaid endorsements. So I actually talked to you, Matt, about this off the mic, but I might as well mention it on the mic. I watched this movie uh, with my four-year-old daughter called Wolf Walkers. Uh, it's an Apple original movie. It's animated and it's really, the art is just really, really interesting. It's about these creatures that uh, they're human when they're awake and when they fall asleep, they turn into wolves and it's kind of has like a game of Thrones feel to it, but it's, it's animated and it was probably a little violent for my four-year-old daughter. There's a lot of killing that goes on in it, but the, the, art is inspired by like the I think it's inspired by Persian old Persian art and kind of Celtic art and what Matt pointed out is like art from before the time they understood perspective like how to draw perspective so there's no perspective in any of the drawings um like there's no leading lines there's no horizon lines everything is just drawn very flatly but it's beautiful in this weird way it's really interesting check it out wolf walkers on apple you can even just watch the trailer and you'll see how they made this whole movie with no visual perspective i, I don't even know if i'm using the right word but it's like there's no vanishing line you know how there's like kind of two point and three point perspectives like if you look at a city street in front of you all the buildings are flat that the street doesn't converge anywhere it just goes straight out so just a really really interesting artwork and it's you know 
with Pixar and with Disney and with DreamWorks and all these like amazing art studios, Studio Ghibli and everything to find a movie that just has like an art style that you've never seen before is really interesting. So Wolf Walkers on Apple, it just came out. It's on Apple TV Plus if you have that. My other thing is also kid related and uh, it's, I never really promote my friends things unless I think they're really awesome. And so I have a friend uh, that has a company called Handstand Kitchen and they make all sorts of kitchen stuff for kids like you know baking sets and cookbooks and things and i've never bought anything from her but i did just buy this thing for my daughter for hanukkah which is this chef's knife set and it's their knives that work like they they work like real knives like you can cut we so i i gave them to her tonight and she made like a whole vegetable salad she cut like cucumbers and tomatoes and onions and they're somehow it's sharp enough to cut vegetables quite easily and they're serrated too you can kind of cut bread and some other things with them but they won't cut your hand um my daughter's four years old and yeah they're awesome this chef's knife set from handstand kitchen so if you're looking for like a christmas gift or something for a four-year-old they're awesome or if you're just very clumsy like maybe it's worth it to invest in uh, some knives that won't chop your fingers off yeah i mean my daughter still does like she'll hold of something that she wants to cut like and then just put the blade like right straight through her fingers i mean it's just kids are so dumb anyway <laughs> jen what do you get well this is kind of old but i want to bring attention back to it because i just thought it was so cool uh there's this animated series called undone on amazon have you guys People seen it? love no, that I've show. Heard of it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It it's 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 a oh. rotoscoping. Yes, I've seen a trailer. And it's got um it's got incredible performances in it. It's got a really just beautiful look, and it kind of it reminds me of uh, a scanner darkly kind of like that. Yeah, style. it's kind of that. I remember I remember seeing this short film years ago that was rotoscoped and it was about this artist who was an alcoholic and and he his i don't know it was just it was just cool this is just cool it's beautiful the script is great the performances are fantastic i i want it to be really well known and maybe it is and i'm just not aware but it's great and i think people should check yeah, it out cast, cast is awesome so so rosa salazar and bob odenkirk so good. Possible. We'll have to check it out. Undone. It's on Amazon Prime, I believe, right? It is. Well, my endorsement uh, is a little more abstract. Uh, I just got a new laser printer. Color? Color laser printer. Oh, my God. It's a bane of my existence. My wife convincing me to get the black and white laser printer. I'm so glad you said that. because So I'm not actually endorsing the laser printer because the I'm endorsing the decision to get the good version instead of the cheap version of whatever thing I'm investing in. Where were you three years ago? I have been buying cheap inkjet printers for years. I've spent thousands of dollars on garbage, like pieces of, uh, of equipment. And I, it's a, it's a mistake that I feel like I've been making my entire life. You know, like I'll buy like, the budget version of something and most of the time it's out of necessity right or or out of like a sense of scarcity so like look obviously like this is a privileged statement to be like splurge on the nice printer um but i guess depending on where you are in your life 
I, I, I was always raised to just try to find the cheap version of the thing, right? And like that ultimately can be super expensive and really dumb. Super expensive. And so I, it's a lesson I'm trying to reteach myself over and over again is sometimes just do the research and like, you know, if you've got the cash, buy the, the right version, the best version, the industry standard version, invest in that. And then hopefully you're not wasting your money over and over again over years. On a thing like a printer or like I in college, you guys, I bought a used fridge and our just our, we just had rotten food for, <laughs> for like two years. I saved $50. You, you know, you was know? the first thing that I that I learned that on was on buying a really good bed. Yeah, I definitely yeah, found yeah, a mattress. Yeah, I like alley. pays dividends. <laughs> yeah, really yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I slept on in college. I just, everybody had a futon and then they got themselves a real bed and I just took the futon mattress and slowly got a stack of futon mattresses <laughs> higher, higher. Princess in the peace style. I, I did not buy a real bed until I got married. Yeah. By the way, Matt got yeah. married when he was 18, so it's not a real accomplishment. Yeah, I was 12. I was 12. I was, I was a child bride, so. Um. Well. <laughs> All right. Well, Jed, this was a treat. We could talk to you for forever. Uh, please come really back nice home when you've got the next guys. movie. Um, I, I would great. love to. And thank you for having me. This was super fun. One more time, just to remind people how they can learn more about you, what you've got going on. Where are you at on the internet? On Twitter, I am I am Jen McGee. And uh, right now you can see my work. You can see Russ Creek on Netflix. I think you can see Kelly and Cal still even on uh, iTunes. Well, if you want to learn about uh, all of the things that we talked about on the show, you can visit us at JustShootItPod.com. We'll have links to all the things that we talked about, a couple trailers even as well, and our unpaid endorsements. Um, and you can visit us. Keep keep track of what we're talking about uh, on social media at JustShootItPod. If you want to learn what I'm talking about, all those one-liners I've been alluding to, I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Smitey Pileg. I'm everywhere else at O Kaplan. If you have any questions or comments or anything, uh, you can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media master is Derek Aiello, and our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 